Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Stephen Bittner, host of History X Silo and special topics editor at the journal Critica, Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. The editors at Critica have created History X Silo so historians have a place to discuss their works, share their underlying assumptions, explore similarities and differences, and most important, step outside of their own expertise silos. So much of the work of the professional historian fosters narrow specialization. We become kings and queens of our own historical hills and not much else. History X Silo seeks to remedy this. If you are interested in the mission of History X Silo, or if you think you have an idea for an X Silo conversation, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my contact info on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Today, we have a conversation I've really been looking forward to. I've brought together two historians who've written local histories, perhaps I could even say micro-histories of state-led and intercommunal violence in the context of the Second World War and its aftermath. In German blood, Slavic soil, how Nazi Königsberg became Soviet Kaliningrad, Nicole Eaton investigates the fate of the capital city of East Prussia in the Second World War and beyond. Noted as, as a center of the German Enlightenment in the 18th century and for its broad support for the Nazi party in 1933, Königsberg and the northern Pr Prussian lands that surrounded it were annexed by the Soviet Union in 1945. The story of Königsberg becoming Kaliningrad thus presents in concentrated form the encounter between the 20th century's two most infamous, bloody, and radically transformative regimes, Nazism and Stalinism. Eaton's narrative describes the revenge brutality, looting, pillaging, and rape that surrounded the fall of Königsberg to Soviet forces in the spring of 1945. But Eaton also constructs a sophisticated comparative picture of two regimes, one Nazi, one Stalinist, 
that were in tacit dialogue with each other. Each claimed to be protecting European civilization from the other. Each emphasized overcoming historical backwardness. Each, and here I'm quoting Eaton, were revolutionary responses to the tensions of the age of the masses. And in Stalinist Kaliningrad, ideas of universal human malleability and emancipation, which had been core to the Bolshevik revolutionary project, lost traction to a more insidious notion that fascism was a specifically German taint for which there was no cure. Eaton's book is comparative history at its very best. Max Bergoltz's Violence as a Generative Force, Identity, Nationalism, and Memory in a Balkan Community focuses on atrocities committed in and around the village of Kulenvakuf in Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1941. In Kulenvakuf, Insurgents, who were not the products of communist organization, took up arms against Ustasha and troops from the independent state of Croatia. In the ensuing violence, more than 2,000 people, including women and children, lost their lives. Bergoltz's principal and highly revisionist finding is that ethnic rivalry and nationalism were not the causes of intercommunal violence in 1941, but its result. This turns on its head a historiography that emphasizes the legacy of imperialism in the Balkans. Burgles argues instead that ethnic identities in Kulan Vakuf crystallized rather late in the game. They were a product of the immediacy and proximity of violence. Moreover, the more violence there was, the deeper the ethnic divisions became. Bergoltz's violence as a generative force resembles in many respects Jan Gross's reconstruction of the Holocaust in the Polish village of Yedwabny. Turning their gaze on the micro, both Bergoltz and Gross have upset longstanding understandings of violence surrounding the Second World War. So I'll now formally introduce our historians. Nicole Eaton is Associate Professor of History at Boston College. Her work on German Königsberg and Soviet Kaliningrad has been supported by the Kennan Institute of Advanced Russian Studies, the United, St the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and the German Academic Exchange Service. Max Bergoltz is Associate Professor of History at Concordia University in Montreal. His book, Violence as a Generative Force, has won numerous book awards, including the 2017 Herbert Baxter Ad Adams Prize from the American Historical Association. Uh, Bergolz is presently at work on a microcomparative study of four neighboring regions in the Balkans, asking why two of these regions witnessed atrocities in the Second World War uh, and two did not. Uh, so Max and Nicole, I'm really looking forward to this conversation uh, and I'll turn the microphone over to Max. Thanks very much for that introduction uh, and thanks for the opportunity to have read uh, read this book, uh, this what I think is really uh, groundbreaking, phenomenally researched and beautifully written book, uh, Nicole's book, and to have the opportunity to discuss uh, with her um, the relationships and interconnections and differences between our works. Uh, I really appreciate this forum. Um, and uh, it's it it very much, um, it's exciting to me because I work in a field, one of my fields is Balkan studies where um, 
you know, silos are are made with thick walls and uh, are run, shall we say, high to the sky. So we we are very much in our own world in many ways, um, for good and bad reasons. And so I really I really appreciate this uh, this this new forum. Um, I want to jump right in and just talk about one uh, one of the scenes, uh, or I should say, two of the scenes in Nicole's book that I found to be most striking, um, I would say first just on uh, on a human level, uh, later on a more intellectual level. Uh, and I think that speaks to the, the force and the evocative nature of the writing of this book, uh, that it, it grabs readers first, it grabbed me at least in many parts of this book, first, you know, in my chest, in my breathing, and then later on in my thoughts. Uh, and so the, the, the part I'm talking, I want to, I want to talk about uh, concerns a scene just as uh, the Nazi occupation and regime in Konigsberg is crumbling and coming to an end, and the decision is made to exterminate the remaining Jewish population. Uh, and so all of these people are herded down to the sea, to the cold water, and are made, in a sense, to walk out into the waves and kill themselves and drowned. Uh, if they didn't walk, they were going to be shot. And so the way in which Nicole narrates and tells, narrates this scene and tells this story uh, required me to put the book down at one point and simply just walk around my apartment and, and take in the enormity of what was happening. Uh, and of course, the first reaction is to just see the perpetrators as the most inhuman of humans. Uh, and to feel immense empathy uh, for the victims. Um, not long after, there's another scene in the book, uh, or a series of scenes, and this includes uh, the arrival of the Soviet army and the acts by Soviet soldiers uh, committing sexual violence against local inhabitants perceived as Germans, Germans, uh, young girls, elderly women, women of all ages. And I had the exact same feeling of um, the difficulty of taking in the story told, uh, the immense suffering, um, anger at the perpetrators, sympathy for the victims. Uh, and then I began to think about the challenges of telling these kinds of histories of violence in which the story includes horrendous manifestations of violence, uh, unspeakable atrocities, and yet uh, the categories of victims and perpetrators oscillate from one side to the other, sometimes um, forcing us to consider the group that we feel empathy for uh, later on as being um, uh, perpetrators and vice versa. And I think this is one of the great challenges uh, in telling any history of violence and I wanted to, um, I wanted to offer my congratulations to Nicole for telling this story without, uh, without really. I wasn't able to discern, in a sense, which side she's on, uh, and I think that's one of the great, uh, in a sense, great successes of any history of violence. What's here, the, the history is allowed to speak, and the analysis is there without necessarily getting a sense of which side is good or bad. Uh, which I think is is one of the great minefields uh, that we all face, those of us who who, who research and write these kinds of histories. And I, I'm curious to ask, um, 
how, what kind of, what kind of challenges emerged as you researched and came that as you researched this story and as it came into focus first in your mind and then later as drafts, you know, on, on page, so to speak. And as you finalize the telling of this history, you know, what kinds of, how, how did you approach the challenge of telling story, histories of violence uh, and holding on to the humanity of all sides, um, even when the behavior uh, is shocking. Oh, thanks so much um, to um, Stephen, and thank you, Max, for that um, very um, generous uh, retelling of this part of the story. Um, and gosh, I think this is something that our books really share in common in, in different ways, and I think we'll unpack some of that um, difference in our approaches, and yet a sort of general similar commitment um, that our books um, share to talking about violence, talking about the ways in which historical actors um, were shaped by the memory of violence, shaped by the experience of violence, and how those experiences and memories then um, led them to act in particular ways in particular contexts. And one of the um, real benefits of our two local histories and sometimes micro histories um, is to show the multiplicity of factors that could um, shape human actions. Now, in this particular scene, um, the liquidation of the Stutthof uh, concentration camp, the uh, um, Jewish and other um, inmates of the camp were sent to Königsberg at first to build fortifications, and then, as Max described, as the city's uh, siege was coming to an end, were marched uh, out forcefully by SS troops um, and um, various Volkssturm members and young boys from the Hitler Youth who were forced to participate to the Baltic Sea, to the Palmnikan coast, where um, where they the the mostly women were um, drowned, and there were only a few survivors. I was really inspired to tell this story. Um, because it was a response to the historiography that existed. And this is something also that um, my work shares with Max is, is that there are, uh, in, in these cases of extreme violence and extreme victimhood um, against civilians in particular, um, there are stories that emerge um, in post-war West Germany in particular, there have been hundreds um, if not a thousand or more memoirs about the flight from East Prussia, about um, living under the Soviets in post-war Kaliningrad for a few years, and the tragic suffering that these civilians have faced. They, they formed part of the sort of um, shaping of West German identity, of a Cold War narrative, but they were also deeply personal stories of loss, loss of home, loss of life, loss of family, and experience of trauma. Um, on the Soviet side, um, there are likewise stories of loss of life, loss of home. Um, everyone who invaded East Prussia, everyone who was part of the Red Army had lost someone. Um, and so each side, uh, and there are post-war stories that became part of the Soviet official narrative um, about sort of the, the crimes of the fascists and the suffering of the Soviet people. And that had all, all kinds of ideological overlays. Um, this particular scene of East Prussia is a very interesting um, conceptual challenge to write because it's 
been visited by the historiography before, and it's something that I buried in into the footnotes rather than made explicit. Um, one of the key stories of the so-called Historikerstreit or historians' controversy of the 1980s um, in uh, West Germany was about how to tell the national socialist past. Could Germans be presented as victims? Where did the Holocaust fit in this narrative? And one of the um, uh, historians who took part in this and was, was deemed controversial was um, Andres Hilgruber, who himself was from East Prussia, who had been uh, a soldier in the Wehrmacht. And his now infamous or famous, as you, uh, depending on your perspective, book, Two Kinds of Destruction, talked about the last months of the war in East Prussia, the downfall of East Prussia as a tragedy and the mode of tragedy, this tragic defense by the Wehrmacht against the sort of uh, impending, overwhelming tide of um, Soviet forces was a very emotional part of the book to describe all of that. And then the second half of the book was the, called The Destruction of the European Jewry, which was very social scientific and detached. And so this highly emotional story of German victimhood and unemotional story of Jewish suffering um, became very controversial. Um, that's now decades old, that story, but I thought about in telling this story was revisiting the experiences of Hillgruber himself and of the place he wrote about when, when talking about this. And so uh, throughout the book and not just in this scene, not just in this sort of um, the Palmnikan massacre, um, I was very invested in thinking about um, the humanity of all sides when they committed violence and how they understood it and explained it. Uh, when they experienced violence, when they understood themselves to be victims and the terms for that understanding. And um, and I was really struck reading Max's book, how that similar um, orientation was really present and has to be present in, in a community like the Balkans when there are many, uh, in surprisingly similar ways, um, many sort of silo, if we're going to use the term of the day, silo histories that are highly selective um, ethnic stories of a, a story of Bos and so in Kulivakuf, um, stories of um, Muslims suffering at the hands of Orthodox Serbs, uh, whom they deem to be Chetniks. Uh, stories of Orthodox Serbs suffering at the hands of Ustasha, who they deemed to be uh, Croat Muslim, etc. And and that in that case, um, in the case of, of Max's book, we see really um, just uh, over and over the ways in which the categories that later became solidified in telling the story were not necessarily the categories uh, exactly in play at the time, and how and so for me. I, I similarly wanted to show how the peoples at the time understood themselves while also taking into account the ways in which they later told the story. And that, that was part of my challenges in the story. And one I was working against um, or with in dialogue with um, Andreas Hillgruber and others, but I was also working in dialogue with the, the memories of the primary sources, the oral histories, of Soviets, the memoirs of Soviet soldiers um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union when they were, those more fruitful memoirs were published, also the memoirs of the expellees, um, and trying to take their stories seriously because they were communicative memories, you know, that whether or not the stories are true, they had power and they influenced behavior and they influenced memory and identity after the war. 
And so that challenge for me and um, that I hope I um, did justice to, and I'm happy to hear it sounds that, that I did, at least on this reading, was to um, empathize with everyone um, while um, not shying away from talking about um, violent acts, retributive acts um, on the part of everyone. Yeah, yeah I think what was impressive in this part of your book to me, um, and it, it made me think of um, a strategy that I, I employed while writing that I don't think I necessarily consciously thought about was, uh, it, it sounds simple, but I think it's, it's not the most natural reaction when, uh, when encountering these kinds of, uh, these kinds of memoirs, these kinds of sources, these histories is, you know, what happens when um, you don't shy away from telling, you know, the atrocities that all people involved commit. Um, what, what happens when the when the spotlight can be shine, you know, sh shown on this side and on that side according to the the evidence that exists from day to day, from month to month, and then what does that look like once the stories are out there uh, to be considered? Um, when I was a doctoral student, I think I struggled uh, with this. I, I without necessarily choosing to, you know, my field work led me to uh, the town that became the center of my book. And I became uh, friends with people there and, um, you know, somewhat partisan to the stories they told me and saw the struggles they had gone through um, in the most recent war in the 1990s. And um, was I was very much was and still am aware of the difficulties uh, people there face. And, and that affected the way I wrote my doctoral dissertation. Um, and I, I remember uh, a committee member saying to me, you know, um, suffering doesn't necessarily make people, you know, righteous uh, or into martyrs. And, and these were kind of, uh, that was a moment where uh, I think I, I began to step in the direction of, um, of expanding my, you know, kind of my sense of, of who counts as human. Um, and, and I think the challenge from that point forward, more unconsciously rather than consciously, was that, you know, well, who counts? Well, everyone. Uh, and that's... That sounds, you know, like a good thing to say, but it's not at all straightforward uh, when when you start uh, encountering the kinds of atrocities like what what you're recounting in your book. Uh, it becomes an, an an enormous challenge, and um, and for me, I think um, I, I honestly I'm not sure how well I've met that challenge. I think the the, the key the key evidence that I it was more, I, I succeeded more than I than I failed was the reaction of the translated edition in the region, um, and that the book has been um, the the Bosnian edition of my book has been uh, I've seen words of appreciation from groups that would normally never talk to each other, and that doesn't mean that they like the whole book uh, or that they've even read the whole book, but that there's parts of the book that somehow sound true and evocative and real to them. And I think um, for those who are willing to engage from page one to the end, just like those who would be willing to engage with um, the stories from your book that I narrated a little bit earlier, um, that's like a huge step forward. And I think, you know, another, this brings us, you know, maybe to another point of commonality, a very important point actually, which is, you know, our decision, yours more of, of a larger urban center, mine much more of a smaller rural uh, one could argue Kulinvakov is, is more of a village than it is a town, but in that part of Bosnia, it's, it's certainly a town. It's very small. Uh, um, but uh, to to adopt the local perspective. Uh, and, um, 
you know, I think in parts, it's it was always an interest of mine. I always found that the information in the records and the the archival documents that I discovered um, from local places, that's when I would be in the archive, that's what would make my heart rate increase. Uh, that's what would make me stand up in the archive and, and walk around and feel like, wow, there's a story to be told here. I never had the same reaction to the speeches of big, you know, important political elites or stories at the national level. That's just, that was my personal um, interest and every historian has their own thing that gets their blood pumping. So, I mean, um, we, we share a commonality there, but I also think later on um, that interest fused with my uh, discomfort with some of the the trends and the bigger works of history um, coming out about Eastern Europe and the Second World War. Um, for example, Timothy Snyder, uh, Bloodlands, uh, Europe between Hitler and Stalin, um, you know, rightly called a monumental work of history uh, for many reasons. Um, the most basic would be simply the reach of the book across the globe at this point and sh shedding shining light and calling attention to uh, violence, uh, in particular, the part of Europe that you study, but one could also argue, uh, you know, to, to the time period and, and Europe more generally, so also in, in, in what I've worked on. But um, I personally, uh, while, I, uh, while I respect the work of history on one hand, I personally did not find the approach and the explanations and the engagement with violence to be something that inspired me in terms of creating my history and, and writing it more as something I wanted to, in a sense, write against. Um, and I can say a few more, a few more words about that, but I'm, I'm curious um, if that's a book that uh, you were talking to in yours in some, um, I, I suppose, more um, implicit way. Uh, and if there's other literature that you felt like you really were uh, writing it against, because it certainly is uh, is an agenda setting book in certain ways uh, for the temporal, geographical and thematic focus of your work. Yeah, that is so interesting to think about our books um, as very local place oriented studies of violence in, in something we call Eastern Europe writ large, which has all different kinds of names and euphemisms and shifting terminologies. But uh, if, if we adopt um, Tim Snyder's very um, uh, evocative and, and perhaps even generative term, if we wanted to, of, of bloodlands, where, where we're, we're working on, on different ends of the Baltic and Balkan ends of the bloodlands in our works, um, I found that so striking. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. I found it so, so striking reading your book because you take it head on in the intro throughout the book and in the epilogue to think if I, um, or in the last chapters to think about um, what kind of work Bloodlands is because it is so formative and, and shaping the public consciousness and our field. Um, and, and, and you say something uh, on, in a couple points that I found, I just I, I just put stars all around it and, and thought I was a, this is this is what I should have said in my book. You know, there were so many instances I, I'd known for a long time I wanted to read your book, but I was under great tenure deadline pressures, and so um, when uh, when asked to do this exilo, your your name of your book came to me as something I've been meaning to read this anyway, and I wish I'd read it before I finished my book <laughs> because it would be better in in all kinds of ways. Um, to incorporate um, your insights, um, namely in, in talking about um, Bloodlands and the work you do in response, is that um, what Tim Snyder's book does is show us these very evocative 
horrifying, tragic scenes of violence. And, and as, as you point out, it's Europe between Hitler and Stalin. And so this is something I always found in Bloodlands that I, I think also prompted your response, which was that we get this very high level macro machinations of leaders, Hitler in Berlin, Stalin in Moscow or wherever he happens to be at the time. And they are thinking and plotting and their ideologies exist. There are these ideologies out there. There's, there's the evil... Um, and it is evil, <laughs> not, not even scare quotes, evil sort of genocidal biological racism and exclusionary um, organizing principles of Nazism with the, the imperial dynamic, the same of Stalinism operating in different ways, but that they are sort of both gardening states that go out and, and inflict this on Eastern Europe, you know, their, their horrifying visions and violence ensues. But there, between the sort of micro descriptions of the violence and this macro sort of storytelling of the ideologies and the personalities, there, there's not a lot of sort of sinews, connective tissues of explanation. How, how do people decide to kill each other? How do people decide not to kill each other? Um, when and where do these ideologies become um, actionable or salient? When do they not take hold? How do they actually interact with, with the community, especially these very multi-ethnic communities where so much of the violence is horizontal, is in, intra and inter-communal, um, and not just uh, Nazis and their victims and Stalinist communists and their victims. And your book does that very explicitly, says, you know, um, and what I find so impressive, and it's now going to be incorporated into all of my undergraduate and graduate syllabi, is going to be your book, helping us explain how violence happens. And then what I found so striking is how violence sometimes doesn't happen. The, the operational word in your book is restraint. What, what are the forces of restraint? When does restraint come in and shape um, the action of local participants and groups? And you point out, you know, sort of in contradistinction of bloodlands, yes, um, German uh, forces came in and reshaped the region very dramatically. Um, uh, in 1941, uh, but the Germans aren't part of your story. There, there's the independent state of Croatia, the acronym NDH uh, that you use, and that it is established and it gives ethnicity this new saliency. E ethnicity is a category with Croats, whatever Croats may be on top. And it turns out that Catholics and Muslims can both be called Croats so that if you lump those two categories together, they make a majority over people who are called Serbs, who are who tend to be Orthodox. Um, but that, uh, as you point out, that it is not Hitler and Stalin doing any of this, or even, you know, even the Nazis, but that local dynamics now with this newly empowered, it was, it existed already, the category of ethnicity, but now it's empowered. How is it that local forces on the very local level, and you show it, and it's not just the, you know, it's not just, um, uh, uh, the leaders of the independent state of Croatia uh, or their armies, but it really is local down to the very micro level, local Ustasha, the, the tavern uh, owner in the village who somehow manages to get a, a group rallying around him and, and they are carrying out this violence and that how this violence uses the mantle of ideology, the mantle of the ideology of nationalism, but it's it's often about sort of ne never do wells, um, self-enriching, that it's about material gain, it's about opportunities for plunder in the context of chaos, um, and how 
those actions, which are often material benefited or, or about personal vendettas, sometimes cut across ethnic lines, sometimes are within supposed similar same ethnic groups, um, which you uh, just demonstrate so brilliantly that, that they create these categories. And so I found that that was such a refreshing counterpoint to the world that Bloodlands depicts, which is to really show us on the ground how violence and ideology interact, which is not at all straightforward, which is not at all unidirectional, and, and is so much more complex. But if we really want to understand human beings and human beings in groups and why human beings kill each other and how they understand themselves before, during, and after, um, then I think we need to read your book for that. In terms of my engagement with Bloodlands. Um, I wrote my dissertation before it came out. It came out. And then as it became a book, I was increasingly in dialogue with Bloodlands in my head. Um, and uh, I think my, my book was the antidote, if there is such a thing, to that, that existed before, before Bloodlands itself. And that um, the whole premise of my book is what happened. So yes, this is a city between Hitler and Stalin. You know, the, the easternmost um, uh, city in Hitler's Third Reich before the war becomes the westernmost in the Soviet Union after the war. And so it is this you know, sort of literal metaphorical bloodland. I put blood in the title of the book, um, but it is so much of what happens in my story is when this place is under um, successive periods of isolation or siege or being cut off from the outside world, when this borderland becomes a container. I had uh, originally imagined this as a sort of laboratory of revolution. That was a working title for me. It turns out that Cornell already had a book with that title. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to happy to be working with this um, even more um, evocative, um, uh, marketable title. Uh, but I was thinking about this place as a Petri dish. Um, when the leaders aren't there, what happens to these ideologies? What happens when, as I, the language I use often is local torchbearers, basically, when they have to come in contact with the messy polyglot community uh, and take those national ideologies and make them make sense in a local context. And so local Nazis in, in Königsberg had all kinds of different ideas, which really um, bumped up against uh, what Hitler was spouting. They, a lot of the Nazis in Königsberg were devout socialists, were, um, were so-called Prussian socialists. They were anti-Semites. They were conservative in all kinds of ways, but they, they had very similar ideas about collectivizing agriculture, about sort of uplifting the poor peasants. They thought in terms of class as a problem, and they were trying to use nation to overcome class, but they recognized that class was a real issue in East Prussia with poor farmers and rich farmers and the rest. But um, the same with the with the Soviet case after the war is that it really, you know, something our books show in common is that these ideologies are at once very powerful and at once really malleable, really flexible and plastic and material conditions, events on the grounds, as you show in your book, individual personalities, something, and then what you call within war um, endogenous factors. So what happens just in the context of an event unfolding? A commander dies. That commander happened to be in favor of restraint. Um, or a, a beloved commander dies, or um, someone uh, is, or there is an act of 
brutality that provokes even greater brutality. And so when I was writing about how Red Army soldiers understood the problem of mass rape and violence, I was thinking very similarly to what I saw in your book, which was how these sort of perceptions of having been wronged um, or how these, or, or, or just the act of seeing violence then could either trigger more violence or responses that were against violence and how that those could work in both directions at the same time. Anyway, and I think that's those kinds of on the ground dynamics and very local and micro histories that we employ in our in our different ways, I think both, um, uh, they don't entirely contradict the world of Tim Snyder, but they they perhaps, I'd like to think, um, help us understand the ways people experienced and carried out actions, um, violent and otherwise, during the war. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, thanks um, for everything you just said. I was thinking, uh, I was listening to you and thinking about uh, a number of different themes. Um, I just remember uh, finally reading, fi when I finished uh, his book and feeling like, how, what, what do I learn here that could help me write a history of the region that's the, that is my central focus and actually offer something to people living there that would help them understand, since my job as a historian is to, among other things, help the people who either have lived through events or who are descendants of those understand, you know, what has shaped their world. And I felt like if I applied what I see as the main findings, you know, the, the notion that, you know, key leaders and exclusionary uh, violent ideologies, um, you know, led pre-existing groups into massive projects of violence, I, I almost feel like I would simply just be reinforcing what everyone already thinks. And with all of the problematic assumptions and implications of those assumptions that exist already, that was that was deeply troubling to me. Uh, that you know the the, uh, the application, at least my understanding of how that book could be applied to my area, would almost make problems worse rather than shed light on complex, um, hard to answer questions. Um, I was as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about, because um, you mentioned this at the beginning of your comments and also throughout, like the ways in which fields, Russian history, Soviet history, German history, and disciplinary boundaries, here I'm thinking social science versus history, um, affect our ability and shape the kinds of choices we make as historians um, when writing and telling histories of violence. And you mentioned in your the early part of your comment that you know one of the things you found interesting it almost sounded like refreshing uh, and and kind of something that wouldn't have necessarily occur, occurred to you is this idea of restraint of violence. In other words, looking at like why violence doesn't happen as a, as a central subject. And um, that angle of my book uh, again it goes back to my graduate student days, but was not uh, was not triggered by a historian. It was triggered by the political scientist on my dissertation committee, who who simply asked me uh, if I can remember the question uh, precisely. Something like, 
okay, so you've shown very clearly why these killings in Kulinvakov took place. Um, you've offered an explanation. Did these killings happen in every village in this region? And my answer was no. And he said, well, then how can you be sure your explanation actually is robust? Which is another social science word I like, robust. Uh, and, and then I thought to myself, well, then I actually need to do some micro-comparative research and look at why violence doesn't happen. And of course, um, I asked him, I said, what, what should I look at? What books should I look at? And that began, you know, this kind of, you know, amateur pursuit of learning political science to the best of my ability, or at least learning um, the works of political scientists that I could make sense of, which meant, you know, most of quantitative driven research uh, was something that uh, didn't appeal to me and, uh, to be honest, was somewhat incomprehensible uh, and, and remains that way. But it, it, was, it marked a moment where I, I kind of gave myself permission to, to leave the historiographical engagements behind, like in the field of Balkan studies, the field of Yugoslav studies, and in particular, Second World War in Yugoslavia and Eastern Europe more generally. And for a while, I read nothing, um, almost nothing in those fields. And almost everything I was reading uh, was from political science journals and works of political science and sociology and some anthropology. And I think that's where the big questions that frame, the, you know, the, around which I frame my book and the individual chapters really came from. And um, this seemed to make sense to me. I remember going to the, um, to the ACES conference, you know, for Slavic studies one year and presenting an early, this is before the book came out and presenting a part of it and um, being asked, you know, why do you compare the dynamics you're writing about to like Guatemala, Sri Lanka, and parts of Africa, as well as the American Civil War? Why not compare to something more logical like Ukraine during World War II, you know, occupied Ukraine? And I thought to myself, like, why should I do that? Why, why, that makes sense, I guess, from the historical perspective, you think temporally and geographically, like those are your points of comparison. But I think by that point, I realized how much I had kind of, you know, cut my ties in certain ways intellectually. And so I was working outside of my discipline, uh, how successfully I'm, I'm not entirely sure, uh, but it was a path I ended up going down. I noticed when reading your book, um, and I think this has to do with just the size and importance of the fields of you know, kind of Russian slash Soviet history, um, as well as German history. I mean, these are enormous fields, very well developed, highly sophisticated, not necessarily interdisciplinary. It strikes me uh, just the, the, the sheer scale of the historiography almost seems like interdisciplinary engagement is not really supported, um, celebrated necessarily. And I noticed that it seems, at least in the explicit conversations, some of them that you're carrying on in your book, um, it's more directed toward historians. Um, and I guess I, it, it kind of got me thinking about how the size of fields, like my fields are much smaller. And I wonder if that allowed me to, to leave them behind. Um, I also just felt that the, the kind of debates, you know, how many people were killed, who's responsible, who's guilty, who's a victim. These seem to always be the questions. And I found them to be um, constraining um, problematic politically, even morally problematic, and and simply just did not offer me, um, you know, the ability to offer new explanations. They just, they, they struck me as kind of, you know, analytically like dead ends. Like, yeah, it would be good to determine exactly how many people were killed in this place. And then so what? Like, what does that then leave us with? Um, these are important issues for certain groups of people. I understand that. But for me as a historian, in terms of explaining why people do what they do, 
uh, and not other things. They seem to be not so important. But I feel it seemed to me, I wonder, like, are the shadows of those fields, those those fields produced by historians, that those decisively did you did you feel at all um, compelled to cross disciplinary boundaries? Do you feel that the size of those fields almost like precludes that? Because um, I feel like that's somewhat of a difference in our books in terms of our scholarly engagements, both implicit and implicit. Um, and I wonder if that's a difference between, you know, kind of me working in a kind of small field uh, where um, where maybe it's easier to kind of break out of those boundaries. And I wonder if the, the shadows of those much larger fields precludes that or is this, or or really just to hear your thoughts on that issue it was it was a place that got me thinking not just in your comments now but also as i was reading this is a this is a big difference between our books in many ways yeah yeah this is i think the biggest difference between our books is that um in your book uh as i mentioned a little before and as you just discussed that the methodology is front and center and the research questions are explicit you know why do people kill sometimes and not others what forms processes of ethnicization? Um, are these identities prepackaged and ready to explode or do they get shaped in the processes? And these questions, I think you brilliantly start with them and then visit them in each historical time period. And it is very clear that the, the field of political science and to a lesser extent, maybe sociology and anthropology, that they, they're extremely informative. And what I think that I was thinking about, okay, not exactly the same question that you received at ACES, which is why not Ukraine or something like that. That wasn't what was on my mind. What was thinking like, how do we as historians try to balance the particular and the universal? Um, and in your case, the the very particular, very contingent, very local context of Kulin Vakuf as a microhistory is important. It's not just any case study. The particular, as you illustrate in your book, is extremely important. And yet there is something universal that we'd like to think about how human beings interact in groups and how they form memories and how they I, make community. And so I guess that's what the brilliance of your book is, is that you put that methodology front and center, you borrow from all of these other global case studies, including from the US. It's not just a sort of violence happens in, in sort of the global South, but you bring in the context of lynching, you bring in the context of all kinds of, um, all kinds of ways in which groups uh, crystallize around identities and react to violence. Um, and, and yet the particularities of Kulin Vakuf are, are, are there. And that balance, I think, is what is beautiful about history as a discipline and what when we can be in dialogue with these other fields makes history better. Um, <laughs> that said, I didn't come in dialogue nearly as explicitly or even implicitly with other fields the way your book did. And I think um, there are a few reasons for that. So my book, uh, compared to yours, is much more um, narrative driven. And um, I like to think is sort of uh, geared toward a crossover trade audience. And increasingly, you know, I went from writing a dissertation for my committee <laughs> to writing a book that I imagined to be for um, a sophisticated undergrad population. Or um, I'm fortunate um, there are there is just an active readership of people who who want to read about the Second World War, particularly when it involves Germany and the Soviet Union. And so I imagine my audience outside and just an academic audience, and yet I was clearly in dialogue with an academic audience. And so that that shaped the way I wrote. Um, but uh, 
th there could have been two versions of this book. What drew me to this project originally was the period of 1945 to 1948 when Germ remaining German civilians lived together with um, newly arriving Soviet citizens, most of them Russian speakers, um, and tried to make sense of the war. Um, and then what led to this expulsion? And I was um, influenced by my own uh, graduate school training in sociology, particularly the sociology of everyday life, and especially um, Michel de Souteau, um, and sort of these sort of, <sighs> light antidotes or light um, responses to sort of Foucauldian ideas of power, which is these little tactics of the habitat, ways in which um, the kind of uh, habitus of various people are shaped by bricolage and all kinds of working together, um, you know, working with materials and ways of just sort of rewriting power through individual decisions. And so how was it these Germans who found themselves to be an underclass and these Soviets who had suffered so greatly in the war, they come to live together and they're living in the same apartment building, sometimes in the same rooms, these former enemies, and they are, they are, they are salvaging uh, pieces of broken buildings to, to burn and keep warm. They are collecting food and they are repurposing urban space. And th that, draw, that drew me to this book project initially. And, and I think a version of this book that could have been equally successful if this one is successful, I should say, uh, would have been a really much more micro history zoomed in focus of sort of uh, post catastrophic city rebuilding and sort of uh, engagement between the German and Soviet population. And that's what eventually just became sort of chapter six <laughs> could have been the whole book and indeed you know the the dissertation was about fifty thousand words longer than than the book is um i think i took the word count more seriously than i had to in hindsight i wish i had just blown over it and written everything i wanted to write um but uh and so i think that what i wish i had done um well, there's always a coulda, shoulda, greener pastures i i would like to have engaged more with the sort of little strategies people make um, to secure their material world, um, the ways in which their, their understandings of themselves, as we already talked about, how sort of these malleable ideologies are mobilized and how I'm especially um, struck always, and also in reading your book, I picked up on this thread about how sort of um, people act in very self-interested ways, in ways that are very human, very understandable, that we could call it greed or we could call it sort of fears of insecurity, um, trying to secure their material world or the uh, gain benefit for their families or um, fear that others will gain benefit if they don't, you know, sort of how people act in these um, economies of scarcity. Um, and that's really interesting to me. So I wish I had engaged more with that literature. That said, the book I did write was one that became a kind of Tristram Shandy story that if, if you want to tell the story of 1945 to 1948, you need to tell the story of Nazi Germany and the war and how the Soviet Union ended up there. If you, need, if you want to tell that story, you need to tell the story of how the Nazis came to Königsberg in East Prussia and how this became unexpectedly and yet understandably the place of the highest Nazi vote in all of the Reich. Uh, and if you wanted to tell that story, well, then it needed to be a story of this region uh, as a crossroads of the Baltic Sea. And so it, it went ever further back in time and, and it was halfway 
through the book by the time I, I got to the end of the war, which was my initial sort of entryway into the topic. Um, and so I think in some ways I um, relied on a built-in audience who accepts the uh, self-evident uh, importance of Nazism and Stalinism as being really, really important topics, you know? <laughs> and so I didn't, I didn't do the legwork that you did, um, Max, um, to show why a very small case study of a rural village and the surrounding region shows us something really important and universal. You know, I hope that we can take some some bigger takeaways about the ways humans uh, interact in extreme circumstances and how they make sense of their lives. But um, I, I think I I let um, I let the self evident um, importance of this uh, World War II style topic um, do some of that work for me, for better or for worse. Um, I'm curious to ask you, uh, you talked about a political science member on your committee um, saying, you know, what about the dog that didn't bark, so to speak, places there weren't violence. Your book starts with this anecdote, which is something every historian dreams for, uh, which is you are there in the archive and then a blue folder appears and the folder has a mystery in it. In this case, there is a post-war discussion um, by the communist government investigating this Kulinbakov massacre, what happened there, and, and sort of trying to put the pieces together in, in terms of forming post-war memory. And as you very evocatively describe in this introduction, it um, raises more questions. The answers, the ethnicities of the perpetrators and the victims are not entirely clear and that this one gets the sense reading these documents that there are many many questions to ask about how this violence unfolded who killed who and how they understood themselves and that that question then leads to this book uh, i wanted to ask you of course that is a perfect setup for a book and it, it kept me reading to want to know the answers to these questions and made me envious because you found the sort of historian's gold mine in the folder, right? That that shows us the important thing, it's right there. And now all we need to do is explain it and dig deeper. Um, what actually sent you to that archive, to that folder? Because as we all know, our research questions change over time. Your committee member asked you about where violence didn't occur. And so how can you, how do you explain your sort of intellectual journey, one that led you to that folder and then from there to the book that emerged? Um, yeah, I mean, that's that th those first paragraphs of the book, you know, conceal like another book. Uh, <clears throat> I remember uh, when I was, when I was writing this book, uh, I used to talk with my mother about how my, my my writing days were going. She would ask me every day, like, how many pages today? How many pages today? Uh, and then um, we would sometimes talk about how she would joke with me and say, you know, there's another book you should write, which is, you know, the book of the making of this book, which any historian could write. Uh, I mean, and, and should probably. And, and we probably talk about these things like in the classroom. I tell these stories all the time. And that's it's the only time I actually have all of my students' attention uh, when I'm when I'm narrating my stories from research. Um, so there is a big story behind uh, that moment told at the beginning of the book. Um, there's not enough time to tell it today, but a few a few kind of um, pieces of information are useful. Like that moment really undermined the previous two years of work that I had been doing without me 
realizing it at the time. Um, I was in Bosnia. I'd been there just a few months. It was the summer of 2006. It was in September. And I was really, I'd been in the region for over two years at that point. I'd been in Serbia for a year. I'd been in Croatia for a year. I had acquired enough documents to write like 10 doctoral dissertations. Uh, um, and um, I was searching for a final case study to write about uh, the politics of memory in local communities of violence. I, I was not intending to tell stories of violence and to analyze causes and dynamics and effects of violence. It was not. It was not something I had uh, sketched out in my in my prospectus. It was not what I had been doing the previous two years. And uh, I was looking for folders for a veterans organization that was largely responsible for the creation and uh, of monuments to victims, different kinds of victims of the Second World War, which fit into the communist vision of who counted as a war victim. Uh, the archive in Bosnia had, had uh, in Sarajevo, the, the state archive of Bosnia and Herzegovina, there had been a lot of turbulence there in terms of staff coming and going because of the most recent war, some retirements. And so um, I knew that the veteran file, the veterans' files had not been damaged during the war and that they had been cataloged because an index existed. No one could find them. And, and um, day after day, I would drop by the archive and ask if they had found them. And kept saying no and kept getting more irritated every time I would ask. Um, and finally, one of, the, uh, one of the people in the reading room, while the door was closed, I, I heard them say, you know, let the guy down in the basement because I'm tired of him coming here every day. Just send him down there. Like, I, I'm sick of looking at his face, like this Burkholz guy, like enough of him. Uh, and so it was one of these opportunities that you, I had never had in my previous two and a half years because there's regulations that, you know, essentially forbid researchers from coming into these storage facilities and touching the documents in these ways. But then there I was. We went down to the basement, a door opened up, the lights flicked, most of them didn't work, and the archivist gave me a flashlight uh, and said, I think, you know, what you're looking for is down this, that stack of, of materials. And most of them were not cataloged, they were just bound in string, right? And it was really there that I saw it kind of just in passing, you know, written on the side of one of these folders, like I write about in the book, sites of mass killings um, of in Bosnia and Herzegovina. But the date was from the 1980s. In other words, it was a set of documents produced much later and during a time in the 1980s. In 2006, researchers weren't, weren't supposed to be able to see or touch documents from that period. So, um, so. I wasn't, I'd never heard of Kul and Vakuf before. Uh, and when the materials came back to the reading room and we cut them open and cleaned the dust off, um, that's where I stumbled across this story, literally. And uh, the language used to describe the groups, like the word insurgents rather than partisans. Partisans meaning, you know, the communist-led fighters of all nationalities. Um, the word insurgents was used. And I'd never seen that word used in a document, this type of document before, to describe a group of perpetrators. And that was already, that was like an initial moment where I thought to myself, you know, this is something different. Uh, and it sounded like an enormous act of violence. And it was stated very clearly in the documents that this is a political problem. We still don't have the bravery to tell this story that was literally, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's literally what was said in the documents. And 
like I talked about earlier today, that was one of those moments, you know, where you're just, my heart started pounding. And I thought to myself, like, I don't know if I can find out more information about this, but like, there's a story here. Um, and it was a few days later, I got on a bus and went out to this region. It was about a nine hour bus ride uh, to the to a town called Bihat, which is in northwest Bosnia. And then I uh, stayed in a little dingy hotel and the brother of the receptionist uh, was like a local taxi, kind of amateur taxi driver, drove me down to this town. And we got out or I got out and started walking across the bridge over the Una. And there was an old man uh, walking toward me and immediately recognized me as an outsider and asked me why I was there. Like, what are you doing here? And I just mentioned something about 1941 and I heard something terrible had happened here. Do you know anything about this? And he just stared at me for a moment um, and said, you know, there's, there's someone who survived I can introduce you to. And that was another one of these moments where I just thought this story, there's a lot more to do here. And I didn't realize I would spend, you know, many more years researching it. And I wasn't sure on that day how much more information I could find. It turned out there was a lot and it turned out it was very hard to get a lot of it. Um, but it was it was in that moment of, um, of kind of, you know, following intuition. Uh, and I imagined, you know, um, you know, your, your book suggests that there had to have been a lot of moments like that as well, especially because like these points of commonality between our work, you know, of contingency, fluidity, um, you know, the focus on the local, the focus on, you know, what we, what we might call, you know, in, in social science kind of counterintuitive dynamics. Um, those are all moments where, you know, your sense of a historian of looking for something that isn't obvious, where you feel you're there's something important to help explain human behavior, to explain something perplexing, like what takes over. Yes, of course, the training and languages and knowing the historiographies and the literatures and all the things that we formally study, like all of that prepares us for those moments. But it's like, it's that moment of where, you know, your intuition takes over, uh, where you're almost guided, like I've said a few times, like by the, by the increase in your heart rate. And I feel like, you know, that's, that's like the quality that that capacity is what is necessary to write like a local history. And in that sense, even though we study different things, different cases, um, that's that's a point of, you know, of real uh, commonality, I think, uh, in our approaches um, that's that stretches outside of the more kind of the formal intellectual boundaries of, of our commonalities. And I, I'm not. Every historian has that to some extent, but I think there's a there's a special version of it for those interested in local stories uh, I don't know how that how that all that sounds to you but that's a bit more there's a few more words about that moment um that yeah, I can you know elaborate. it's interesting um I, I don't know if you have any um family history to the region you study or if you came as a sort of dispa dispassionate outsider um I don't have any um uh meaningful ancestry or, or connections to um Germany or or um, the Soviet Union or any of those lands um, in my family. And so it was an intellectual journey that led me there and a, um, a love of um, writing about place, a love about of the granular and the particular to kind of understand human beings, you know, and that's what I think history helps us do is to sort of have compassion uh, for the ways that people um, understood themselves in in context and, and acted in, in historical context and sort of to identify with the suffering without um, just sort of succumbing to narratives of victimization without agency. 
Um, something that um, you were just talking about, uh, about um, sort of going into the community and um, asking about these stories and having it open up, you know, sort of a world uh, that became very um, big and important and led you to these research questions. I was just reflecting on my own process there. And as you'd suggested, I probably had these moments of intuition too. Um, was interesting for me as someone without ties to this region, I imagined myself going in as dispassionate and wanted to tell a story that uh, to the best of my ability was objective, you know, with the kind of objective and scare quotes, right? As we know, as historians, it's impossible. Um, when I was in Kaliningrad, uh, and I found, you know, the opposite to what you experienced, I found that the, um, what I did interviews with people, their interviews, uh, their oral histories, and they were just informal, you know, they weren't sort of human subjects research, you know, sort of uh, level interviews. Just when I had conversations with people, I was really struck by how the sort of official memories and the sort of communicative and collective memories really shaped the story of what happened. And I, with my language skills, which were not nuanced enough to sort of circumvent, I, I couldn't get them out of the the sort of ruts of their storytelling um and found it um frustrating because uh later and then later as i began sort of uh reworking the dissertation into a book i accepted those stories um wherever they came from in written form and in, in the archives um the stories i received and when talking to people as all equally important first i was i was frustrated that i couldn't get beyond the stock story um, you know, of, of we came here, we did this, they did that, we suffered in these ways. Um, and, and so for me, um, uh, I, I had to accept those stories as a big part of the way these people understood um, and, 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 the, and had their experience, whether or not I, I found that those stories matched what I had found in the archives. The other thing I experienced in Kalinagrad was a lot of suspicion, and this was, um, you know, now now over a decade ago when I was there, it was all before Crimea, but there were tensions already with uh, NATO, um, with sort of tit for tat, um, uh, sort of exercises on either side of the border. Um, and there was a, a, a lot of suspicion why I, an American, wanted to tell the story, why I wanted to be in the archives. And I didn't experience this in the, um, regional state archives, but in the former party archives, I did a lot of um, gatekeeping, uh, trying to keep me away from documents because many um, of the archivists had experienced Germans coming in looking for dirt, looking for stories of suffering and stories of misery that had fueled sort of popular histories of um, the tragedy of, that the Germans had experienced. And, and that was frustrating for me because I felt that I, if anything, I was I was going to tell a story that was going to work against that singular narrative and do what what your book very much does, which is take in all of these stories into account and all of these perspectives and somehow show how between them was was life. Um, and um, so today, it, it's a sort of bittersweet to me that this book has come out after this. Um, escalation of the Russo-Ukrainian war because I don't see it being translated into Russian. Uh, I, I can imagine this book will be translated into German and hopefully we'll find um, an audience and a receptive one. Um, but it, it, it is strange, you know, that the, the 
community that a community that might um, engage with my story probably won't because um, it, it's um, it'll be it's very politically fraught process to imagine um, translating this story into Russian and and um, because of the highly politicized role of the Second World War um, and stories of the and histories of the Second World War in the Russian Federation today. Um, my my book, which doesn't glorify or sort of um, tell a story of the Red Army's um, participation in the war only through a positive lens, I, I think puts me sort of at, at risk of, of sort of anti-Second World War actions. I didn't take these very seriously because I'm not a, a, a Russian citizen, a citizen of the Russian Federation. Um, but I think now because of the sort of uh, heightened um, political tensions, you know, I think that the chance beyond the ethical uh, and the logistical considerations about sort of even going to Russia and doing archival research or, or having dialogues um, with scholars in the region, um, I think that um, the story now is, is not finding, is not going to find an audience. Um, that said, there are um, historians of the region who are working in Kaliningrad who, who've done outstanding work and have done really sophisticated work. I think um, I would love to have been in dialogue with them to think about how their local histories, Kraivedinya uh, in Russian, the sort of regional history that is very archivally informed, could be embedded in these larger frameworks that I'm also using. But yeah, in any case, it's fascinating how our um, different communities, we coming in as outsiders, um, are invited or not invited to tell the story of what happened, you know. Um, Anyway, I, I was wondering if you'd had any negative responses or um, what kind of what pushback maybe you've had to your book um, from people who um, have a stake in the story. Yeah, it's a big topic, um, not just in, in your region, in my region, but in many ways around the world these days, you know, who who gets to tell whose history. Um, and and, you know, we we come from North American institutions with certain um certain privileges and uh, power to to do things that others cannot um and uh, those are all debates that are ongoing now also within north america of course maybe that's where they're at their hottest uh in, in certain ways um there's certainly a kind of a, a sense in in balkan studies these days and, and yugoslav studies and bosnian studies and kind of going down <laughs> down the line that you know um uh, you know, there's a, a sense of kind of a, my, my perception is there's a there's a criticism among um, certain people that, you know, there are those of us that have a kind of a colonial position that we, we've taken and, and there's something um, inherently and perhaps deeply problematic in that. Um, with that said, and, and I'm, I'm sympathetic and I, I support that critique. On the other hand, um, I haven't, uh, I haven't personally come up against, you know, dismissals of my, of my, a translated edition of my book, um, strangely enough. I, I expected it to be, you know, a very, a very fraught experience, um, getting a trans, get, getting a, a publisher, uh, and then, and then, and then, um, having the book come out in the region. Um, it, it turned out to be the opposite for the most part, uh, which which was surprising to me. Um, I went to Croatia, Bosnia, and Serbia on on a book tour uh, that I organized in 2019. So around about May 2019, I went. I did eight promotions 
Um, it's the most important work I feel like I've ever done. Um, it, because it was a it was a time it was a time where I really felt like I will probably never have a greater sense that the work I do like matters to the world than this experience right now. Uh, doesn't mean that everyone has to like it. Doesn't mean that people need to celebrate me or anything. But that I can see that it writing this book, bringing it to people in the region in their language, like matters. It mattered to have certain stories told. It mattered that certain questions were posed. It mattered that some answers were offered. It mattered that I went around the entire region for years and looking in their archives, finding documents that's, that some people had known and that many more that they had never seen before. And that in that sense, it was, it is a contribution. Um, and there, there, it felt to me like that's in some ways like the pinnacle of, of the work that we do. Um, I just published a recent essay uh, called uh, On Translating History Against the Grain, um, where I, it, it, it was in a, a collected volume honoring the work of Maria Todorova, um, one of, if not the most important historians of the Balkans um, ever, who just retired uh, this, this year. Uh, and in it, I reflected uh, really about how I came to have the book translated and what it was like being in the region. And most importantly, how my entire training in North America, like dissuaded me from working in that direction. That, you know, pushing to have my work translated and thinking about its meaning to the region was seen as something that's good as long as it doesn't get in the way of me doing all the things I need to do to establish myself in the academic world in North America. And... Um, this was this was told to me explicitly at certain points or certainly shown to me. And it's certainly our profession doesn't make a lot of space uh, for that kind of work because it's it's tiresome. It's laborious. It's uh, it doesn't necessarily bring the kind of um, career advancement that we need to secure our positions. And so I'm sympathetic to that. On the other hand, it also stops us from in certain ways realizing the potential of our work in terms of contributing to the world. Um, whose sources and whose lives and whose histories we use to build our careers. Um, and so um, so uh, to come back to your question, um, I think I've ha I had just a, I would say the, a minority of experiences where um, people pushed back against my research or were uh, against what I was trying to do. Um, you know, I think one of the big differences is that, and, and you'll probably see this, my guess would be in the next, you know, five to 10 to 15 to 20 years as we'll see what happens with the war in Ukraine. Um, will it end soon? Probably not. How will it end? You know, any, no one knows. But the importance of your work will matter uh, because it's in moments of war where the black and white conceptualization of violence comes to the fore and where, you know, certain groups are human and other groups are inhuman all the kinds of things that you undermine in this important work that you've just published. And the same, same type of things that I've taken on. M my book um, has a new resonance, re resonance now in the region because there was a recent war in the 1990s, relatively recent. I mean, a lot of decades have gone by since then. Um, but that war is present everywhere. Uh, you know, it's pulsating on the news, it's in people's communities, it's in everyday conversation. And so, um, to, to produce a work of history that, in a sense, tries to tell a human history, you know, where people in all types of behavior are shown to be human. Um, that is, I think, an incredibly important contribution to make to a society uh, struggling after to rebuild itself after a war. And, and so in that sense, while your work may not be translatable right now, 
um, I think it's the importance will will um, remains and and hopefully will be someday, and will be even more important in the shadow of this most recent conflict. I think because it calls attention to aspects of history as well as human dynamics that are necessary for rebuilding um, from yeah. the local level all the way up to the national level. Oh, it's interesting that you we were talking about sort of audience and who who this um, who whom our, our works would reach. And I was thinking only about a sort of audience at Kaliningrad at first, but as you're talking about um, the war now um, in Ukraine, it occurred to me um, that that's um, unintentionally one of uh, what I think will be one of the contributions of my book is I, I finished writing the conclusion, which I hadn't been part of the dissertation or even the first draft of the manuscript, I finished writing it right after the war broke out in 2022 and um, uh, had a big question, you know, in that next three weeks uh, before I turned the manuscript in, whether I would go back and rewrite some things, you know, in light of the outbreak of the war. And I chose not to, because I thought this is unfolding and changing and, and one cannot sort of grab this moment now and, and say anything big yet. And so my book at the very end, you know, perhaps shares shows a little bit of recognition of that war but mostly does not um but i think what i have found unexpectedly resonant is that the second half of my book really grapples with this ideology of anti-fascism as it came to be formed on a local level and then became articulated on a very national and empire soviet empire level uh how a sort of story of Soviet triumph over the Germans and a story of the sort of cult of the world, the Second World War, which Soviet historians have talked about in the past. Nina Tamarkin has written about, more recently, Brandon Schechter has written a, a wonderful book about sort of Red Army soldiers and their understanding of themselves and their mission, you know, vis-a-vis -vis nationality and, and bigger ideologies. But what I, I really discovered in Kaliningrad that seems so important today, but I wasn't thinking that I had an audience for it, was how the concept of anti-fascism was incredibly powerful, but it was incredibly malleable. And it just needed a constant, it was the lifeblood of the regime after the war, but it needed an enemy. It needed to have a perpetual fascist enemy to fight. And so it created a post-war fascist enemy in the Germans. And we see that today. Um, I think there was a lot of shock about why Putin and the Russian leadership and, and down the ranks, why people in Russia are talking about Nazis in Ukraine or over perhaps overblowing the role of like the Azov uh, regiment and, and uh, you know, when, when Zelensky is Jewish, you know, and sort of, sort of the conversations I have with people who are not experts in the region say, you know, come on, how they've got a Jewish leader, how can they be Nazi, you know? Um, but to really take seriously the ways in which um, many people in the former Soviet Union, and that's not just Russia that inherited that legacy, understood um, the worlds of fa fascism and anti-fascism as a sort of an us and them, and who we are as anti-fascists and who they are as fascists, and how the actual contents of those categories were incredibly malleable. Right. And so that and so I think the same way that we use the term fascism and anti-fascism in a U.S. dialogue today to call the opponents, whoever they are, fascists that could be on the left or the right, you know, that these um, these categories are as empty as they are powerful. 
<laughs> in some ways. And so fat, you know, so being anti-fascist could be the same as being a Russian nationalist, it turned out by the end in Kaliningrad. Uh, and and uh, being, being fascist became synonymous with being German in the same way that being fascist and Ukrainian could become synonymous today is because these binary principles are very powerful and and kind of, um, to use your term, are generative in some ways, and that they 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 come to describe sort of antagonisms as they are crystallizing on the ground. Um, so perhaps that will have some resonance, um, unfortunately, in today's political context. I think absolutely, and it's it's important to remember that um, you know, the way forward will be charted by um, not, in a sense, the violence that's going on right now, the war that's going on in Ukraine now, <clears throat> just like the war in Bosnia. Back in the 1990s, um, these, in a sense, you know, transform history, uh, and that transformation of history then creates a, a, a general sense among people of what's possible and what's not possible in the future. Uh, and you know, the modest but nonetheless, I think, critical role of people like us and others and our colleagues in the region is to try to um, is to try to craft stories that present a different sense of possibilities in the future. Uh, and that, I think, is the will be the lasting value of your work. So I do hope the day comes when it can be translated, um, and and to realize to realize its its potential. Um, I'm sure it'll realize plenty of its potential, but that will be a critical step because it'll give people a sense of what's possible in the future, um, and to step out of the shadow of war, which which radically transforms um, their sense of of what can be done and what can't be done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this has been a great conversation, uh, and I really want to just say one last time, uh, I think your book is absolutely wonderful, beautifully written, deeply researched, provocative, important, uh, and uh, speaks to the moment we live in. Uh, it wasn't necessarily your plan, but really does have a resonance today uh, in, in the world we live in. So just a huge congratulations to you for, for doing this. Well, Max, your book's been out far longer, and, and many more people have, have told you this uh, by now, but I want to pass all those same adjectives and, and congratulations on to you. Um, and I am absolutely struck by, as I mentioned before, our, our I think we both share evocative, evocative sense of place um, and really creating place and, and kind of lovingly depicting a region and giving it color and the interactions between people in the communities but then very, very different modes of storytelling and modes of doing history in our works and yet um, very similar preoccupations. And I, I just absolutely loved um, having this conversation and thinking about our books in dialogue. And as I said, I wish I'd read your book before I finished mine because it would have been for the better. So thank you very much. Well, uh, on behalf of everyone at Critica, uh, I wanna thank Nicole and Max for their uh, really riveting conversation today. Uh, you can find the links to the books they have discussed on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Uh, and please keep an eye on the History X Silo page for our next History X Silo conversation. Uh, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. 